This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. This feels like an appropriate song to describe trade negotiations that are going on between the United States and China. A lot of headlines uh, also on this Monday after a lot of headlines over the last few weeks. Jim Backus is former chairman of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, now director of the Center for Global Economic and Environmental Opportunity at the University of Central Florida. He joins us on the phone from Orlando. He's also got a new book out. It's called The Willing World, Shaping and Sharing a Sustainable Global Prosperity. Uh, so, so nice to have you here, Jim, uh, with Jason Kelly and myself. Best trade policy. It's where, what, all benefits... Uh, all benefit, no abuses. It's kind of a policy that lifts all boats. Is that what we're moving toward in your view? I'm afraid we're moving in the wrong direction and really hurting each other. Uh, Some may think we can win a trade war, but the truth is no one wins a trade war, and uh, both sides are beginning to lose just a bit now. And so, Jim, what would it take to get this back on track from your estimation? And and let's focus on China for the moment, because I also want to ask you uh, about the NAFTA negotiations separately. But with China specifically, especially as we see this back and forth, what what would what would it what would need to happen? Well, as corny as it may sound, we need to reason together, and we're not doing that. Uh, the president's about to. Uh, slap another $200 billion worth of Chinese products with 10% tariffs, and that's not going to bring China to the negotiating table. It's going to cause them not to negotiate. Um, That's not the way to go. Uh, Not only are all these tariffs illegal and economically uh, uh, nonsense uh, and counterproductive, but uh, they don't produce a result in terms of better trade relations. Uh, We need to... uh, Uh, get to the table on both sides with uh, a desire to uh, find some room for compromise. Well, how much is... There's no real effort to do that. Jim, how much is bluster, um, perhaps, on both sides? And how much, um, you know, do you really think is serious? And what would be a smarter trade policy from versus what we've had over the last few years? Well, the smarter trade policy would be to make certain that we take care of the folks who happen to be hurt by trade. And we haven't done that. Far fewer are hurt by trade than uh, we may think, but we we haven't taken care of them. And that's a source of the anguish that has led to this type of uh, uh, counterproductive action by uh, our president. Um, In addition, uh, we need to use the tools we've created over the past 70 years to resolve trade disputes. They've worked extraordinarily well. The WTO has resolved more than 500 international trade disputes in 20 years, many of them uh, very large disputes involving billions of dollars. Um, And uh, the Trump administration is wrong when it says that there are no WTO tools that can be used here. There are half a dozen strong uh, legal cases that can be uh, brought in the WTO against China. 
Uh, instead of uh, targeting uh, our allies with uh, um, silly types of uh, trade tirades, we should have been working with them and combining with them to bring strong cases against China where they're warranted, uh, where the Chinese have been found to uh, have acted in violation of their WTO obligations in WTO dispute settlement, uh, uh, they have complied with WTO rulings. So I don't understand why we're not trying that. Well, and, and so let's go a little deeper on that. What is it about the WTO that seems so offensive to this particular administration? Because the president has, has made no bones about the fact that he doesn't believe in it essentially fundamentally uh, doesn't believe in, in the whole concept. Is this just a manifestation of not believing in multilateral negotiation? Or what is it about the, the WTO? Well, to be fair to the president, uh, he's always had this view, mm -hmm. uh, so far as we can tell, um, in contrast to many of his other views. And also, he didn't invent this point of view. This has been around since we had the debate over whether we would uh, join in creating the WTO 25 years ago. I was in the Congress at that time. I was certainly in favor of it. I believe America benefits more if we have a global trading system in which there are rules in which we've all agreed and everyone complies with them and the rules are binding. Um, other people believe that, no, we shouldn't be part of a binding system. We Americans should simply uh, use our might to get our way in terms of world trade. So and those people are now in power in the United States, and Donald Trump uh, is simply voicing that view. So, Jim, just got about a minute left here. So when it comes to the trade negotiations between the United States and China, what specific issue should the U.S. hold firm on when it comes to China that you think would have the biggest payoff, be the most fair uh, for the United States? The president is absolutely right in focusing, to the extent he has, on the structural uh, aspects of uh, Chinese trade and uh, the efforts by the Chinese to develop uh, their economy uh, through a state-run, state-dictated system of, of uh, managing trade. That is where we should be focusing. The irony here is that the president himself, back home, is trying to manage trade in ways that make no economic sense for the United States of America. All right, we're going to leave it there. Jim, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Jim Backus, he's Director of Center for Global Economic and Environmental Opportunity at the University of Central Florida and, of course, former chairman of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization, joining us on the phone from Orlando. My anticipation is we're going to continue to see headlines perhaps throughout the week, but I, you know, I do wonder about what are the things that we should be stressing as a nation that really makes sense, is fair, and benefits the United States, while also, of course, being fair to an important trading partner, well, which is we, China. And we didn't get a chance to talk to him enough about NAFTA and uh, where Canada may end up in all this. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. So as we talked about, all eyes were down south over the weekend and really the end of last week as this massive hurricane churned toward the Atlantic coast. Uh, Florence uh, did dump a huge amount of rain and that 
the implications of that are going to be faced by municipalities down that way for some time to come. To help us make sense of it all, uh, Lyle Fitter, he is the head of municipal fixed income for Wells Fargo Asset Management uh, based in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Joining us on the phone from there, Lyle, good to be with you. So as you look at this storm and the impacts, how is this playing through the muni market? I think it's really had little or no impact so far. Uh, again, I think uh, investors tend to look at, you know, historically what has happened in these situations. Again, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to analyze the amount of damage and who specifically was impacted. But, you know, fortunately, I think the state of North Carolina, which was probably the hit the worst, is in good financial uh, situation. They're AAA-rated credit. I think they've already said they're going to help out all local municipalities. And the federal government has already declared it a disaster area, so there will be funds uh, coming from the federal government as well. And, and again, historically, if you look back, these types of events, again, on the mainland at least, I, I think obviously Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and Guam are you know, maybe an exception. Historically, they have not led to defaults in the, in the municipal bond market. I do wonder, Lyle, how much of the muni market uh, in those areas affected uh, by the storm might see some impact on them financially because of you know, reduced economic activity in that area. On the other hand, we know that there's going to be increased economic activity as they try to, you know, rebuild or they do rebuild and clean up the mess. But I do wonder how that plays into all of it. Yeah, again, I think historically you'll see the slowdown initially, but it very quickly I think you start to see the uh, rebuilding that uh, starts to take place. And that actually, you know, again, contrary to what most people would think, has, has somewhat of a positive impact in terms of generating uh, revenues for a lot of these municipalities. So let's shift to the Midwest, Lyle, closer to home uh, for you. I happen to be in Chicago over the weekend, and I can tell you everyone uh, is talking about uh, Mayor Emanuel's decision not to seek re-election. He has obviously been the prime architect of a very tricky uh, fiscal situation out there, to say the least, or the potential solutions to a tricky fiscal situation. What does that uncertainty mean for the muni world out that way? Yeah, I think you have a couple of things coming up in the state of Illinois. You know, in Chicago, obviously, you have a uh, election, a governor's election coming up this year. Um, I think there's, you know, right now, if you look at the polls, it looks like you could see a change take place there. The market wasn't expecting uh, Mayor uh, uh, Emanuel to announce that he wasn't going to run again for uh, uh, the mayor's uh, spot, and so. At least in the taxable market, uh, it did cause investors to um, uh, the, the, the debt levels or the um, amount of yield they have to pay to finance their debt did widen out a little bit, meaning that uh, it underperformed a little bit. By, but ironically, actually, the tax-exempt debt actually performed uh, a little bit better. I think that has to do more with technicals. But again, I, I think people need to take a step back. We would, you know, we would be on your side. I think uh, Mayor uh, Emanuel has done a nice job from a long-term perspective in terms of moving the city in the right direction. But ultimately, I think you have to look at what is the economic backdrop. You know, one person isn't going to drive that uh, economic backdrop from a long-term perspective. So while it's of a concern to us, we still think um, uh, the city is a great place to invest your money. Uh, the economic backdrop is very solid. Um, and unless we go into a severe uh, recession, uh, we think the city will do just fine. Interesting. $28 billion, Carol, of unfunded pension liabilities there in Chicago. It's It's, it's been a, a huge task for the, 
the Emanuel administration there. Well, it's kind of interesting. So you're not really worried about the Carolinas. You're not worried about the changes in Chicago. When you look at the muni bond market, uh, seems to be overall in good shape at this point and just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, I think, you know, overall it is in good shape. I think, you know, state rainy day funds uh, on balance are at record levels, you know, pre-recession types of levels. Obviously, the the haves and have-nots. But I would say what does concern us is where credit spreads are today. Uh, I think people are are not very concerned about, uh, you know, an upcoming recession. So our general theme has been actually to go up in quality, go out the curve a little bit. The, The curve between twos and tens in munis is relatively steep compared to the Treasury curve. So we actually think it's prudent for people to step out the curve a little bit, go out to the 10, 15-year part of the curve. You can pick up a lot of additional income, and you don't need to take as much credit risk in because rates have gone up to get the same yield that right. you could have gotten you know, 6, 12, or 18 months ago. All right, Lyle. Thanks so much for your time today. Lyle Fitterer, Head of Municipal Fixed Income at Wells Fargo Asset Management, on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. That Bloomberg Barclays Muni Bond Index total return just down about two-tenths of a percent this year, Jason. Ah, yes. Have a Coke and a Smile taking on a bit of a different meaning perhaps today on a report that the beverage giant said to be interested in the cannabis drinks market. Let's get into this with our own Craig Giamona, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. I said to you when you walked in, uh, Coke is either getting kind of cool or they're jumping the shark here. Tell us a little bit about this possible arrangement business deal between Coke and maybe a marijuana company. Right. So what we do know for sure is that Coke is acknowledging that they're looking at cannabis and specifically looking at CBD, which is a non-psychoactive ingredient. It's in marijuana. You can also get it from hemp. But Coke was very careful to sort of say CBD, which is different than THC. So right off the bat, that means this is not a drink that's going to get you high in the traditional sense of you're in your dorm room or whatever. This is wellness. So CBD is what the FDA is looking at. It's the stuff that helps kids with seizures. Mm -hmm. There's research and science behind the medical benefits of CBD and Coke. You know, the backdrop here is declining soda consumption, right? I mean, soda consumption is at the lowest level it's been in a couple decades. Sugar is a health boogeyman. And this is Coke saying that we think there's future in CBD for wellness drinks. And we are seeing it feels like a lot of the big beverage companies start to pair off here. You know, Constellation obviously has come in, Molson Coors uh, as well. Is this something that is going to continue? Everybody's just going to kind of match up and and see where this goes. Is it a bit of a hedge against this larger trend? Yeah, I think it's it's all of those things. So what's happened is um, in a couple of weeks on October 17th, recreational marijuana will be legal across Canada. So federally legal. It's already legal medically. So Canada has kind of become the testing ground. Yeah. These companies have gotten comfortable with putting the money up in Canada, dipping their toe in, seeing what happens. And so it's going to be another year before we see products like drinks and edibles in Canada. But you know, these beverage guys, I mean, the alcohol companies have the same problem, right? Beer consumption is down. Diageo is said to be interested here. Heineken, Molson Coors. So the beverage guys are really the first ones to show up. And I promise you that the packaged food people are not far behind. But what Coke is thinking about, Craig, we're not just talking about a niche market. I mean, potentially for it to be a medical treatment or a healthcare treatment, that could be a huge market. Could actually transform what kind of company Coca-Cola is potentially. It it is potentially huge. I mean, there's an established customer base for this stuff. And more and more, I mean, CBD right now is like the trendy superfood ingredient. You see it in face creams. It's in all kinds of beauty products. It's in food. It's in drinks. You know, 
one of these companies is going to solve like a natural sleep aid. They're going to figure out how to get people sleep and CBD can be used for stress. So there are gigantic addressable markets. And that's why these Canadian pot stocks have traded up so much. That's part of it here is the potential, I think, for gigantic consumer medical products. Could you see potentially, if indeed this is what plays out for Coca-Cola, that it becomes a different kind of company going forward? You know, I think they already are, right? So we saw them invest in a big-time coffee business. They mm -hmm. bought Costa over in the UK. So they're still a beverage company. I don't think that, you know, I mean, maybe 20 years from now, Coke's going to be a pharma giant. I don't. That's probably going a little too far. But they're clearly saying, look, people are drinking less soda. We're going into coffee. We're looking at CBD. So this is Coke saying, where's the growth going to come from over the next five or 10 years? And so broaden it out to the rest of the beverage business. I mean, Pepsi, what do you think they do here? How does this uh, play into this broader? Because as you say, this is a secular trend when it relates to sugary uh, beverages. Are people going to continue to to match up like this? So Pepsi, you know, they're hedged a little bit because of Frito-Lay. The Frito-Lay yeah. business has been very strong. Salty snacks kind of getting a pass these days from Americans, whereas sugar is not. So it'll be interesting. I, I have to believe that any beverage company and the packaged food companies are all looking at this. For one, they want to figure out how to market to this group of customers, the cannabis consumer. I mean, California is legal now, right? That's the sixth largest economy in the world. So I think they're looking at it from a market perspective and also from a product perspective. And I do think you're going to continue to see dance partners kind of line up with these big CPG and beverage companies. No question. I mean, Mondelez, we did ask Mondelez about this recently and they yeah. said no. They said, we're not looking at it. You know, our brands play with families and kids, so we're not doing it. Craig, what has, what has to happen on a regulatory front, though, globally in different markets for all of this to kind of play out? Yeah, that's the big thing. You talk to people in this industry, they're very optimistic about the U.S., you know, it becoming legal. I don't see a path to recreational legalization down here. You know, the, the Trump administration is a bit of a wild card. You never know where they could come down. You could get medical become legal down here. But, you know, these the Canadian market, there's 30 million people in Canada. You know, that, that's a tiny market. Right. So these companies, the valuations are predicated on, I believe, the U.S., definitely international exposure. Right now, you can't move product at all across the Canadian-U.S. border. You can't move product between California and Oregon. Mm -hmm. That's two legal states. Once it becomes interstate commerce, the feds say no. So the, the regulatory atmosphere down here is still very, very strict. I want to bring in a headline that just crossed the Bloomberg U.S. Department of Justice granting clearance to the Cigna Purchase of Express Scripts. That obviously is a much anticipated ruling. I was just going to take a quick look at Cigna shares. They are now uh, up about one and a half percent, Carol. So we'll uh, dig into this a little bit more. But uh, we're seeing social media volume. One of the things we track here at Bloomberg uh, start to surge on this. Uh, again, as Cigna Express Scripts deal clears uh, Department of Justice review, this is something, any yeah. deal, I feel like we don't know exactly which way uh, it's going to go. The right. antitrust uh, division has uh, not been exactly predictable here. Yeah, we definitely see the stock uh, popping uh, just on that news and kind of uh, now it's up about 1.8%. Craig, Coca-Cola, though, this is a company you have followed. I've, I've followed it as well. And uh, they've got to do something, though, right? Because as you said, you know, sugar is now the target. Yep. Uh, and so this is their business. So they've got to figure out something. And I know they've been taking steps and, you know, buying different companies, but they've got to figure out their future. Yeah. They, they, they've, you know, they've done a little bit better than Pepsi in the beverage space over the last year or so. Diet 
Diet Coke posted growth for like the first time since 2010. But, you know, that's grabbing more of a shrinking pie. There's mm -hmm. no question that people are going to drink less soda over time. It, it sort of, I feel like the die is cast when it comes to soda and sugar. So, yes, this is them looking at the growth. And also, you know, we're coming out of an era when big food, so, so to speak, they missed a lot of these trends, right? right? The packaged food guys, the beverage companies, they missed all this stuff. Coke saying, we don't want to miss this one. We, we see the potential growth and we want to have a, a, a foot in the door. What was their biggest miss? Well, I mean, they've missed a lot, right? I mean, they've paid all huge prices for vitamin water and these kind of things, kombucha, right? Yeah. You know, these, just like in the food space, the drink trends kind of move faster than the big guys are able to move. And I just think this is them saying, that's not going to happen to us again. Yeah, exactly. Craig Giamano, consumer reporter for Bloomberg, bringing us the latest on Coke and this cannabis adventure. <laughs> So emerging markets have been very much front of mind, but not always the connection between uh, monetary and fiscal policy and emerging markets and how that contagion, if in fact that's what we're experiencing, is going to play out and the cause and effect there. To help us make sense of it, uh, Rich Miller joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down in Washington. He's got a great story uh, in Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's already out on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com. How tighter money hit emerging markets in a warning for others. So Rich, help Help us break this down. What's going on out there that investors need to understand this connection? Well, first of all, the emerging markets uh, have been hit really hard, as you mentioned, over the last uh, couple of months. You know, their the emerging market stocks are in bare territory. Emerging market currencies are down about 10 percent. And if you look on the surface, it looks like, well, these are just special situations. You have, you know, Turkey with uh, Turkish leader Erdogan sort of uh, unconventional uh, uh, views that uh, if you lower interest rates, uh, you bring down inflation, and you have Argentina has their own problems. So, so on the surface, it looks like these all these idiosyncratic things have going going on. But if you look a little bit below, what's driving it is that the Fed and and now and then the ECB and the Bank of Japan are basically getting more stingy with the amount of money that they're they're pumping into the system, mm. and that's hurting all these a lot of the emerging markets who took advantage of uh, when all these banks were doing quantitative easing to really load up on debt. It seems so obvious. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. so is it like, hello, everybody, you knew this was coming, or what? Or is there some special nuances, Rich, to what is going on in Argentina or going on in Turkey and some other emerging markets? Well, um, th th there... Because how do you explain China? Is it the same story? Because China's markets have also gone, you know, we've seen a big pullback, certainly in their equity markets. Yeah, well, China... China, as always, is a bit of a special um, uh, situation, but, but it is true that their companies also did load up a lot on overseas bonds, a lot of them uh, in dollars. So uh, the withdrawal of liquidity uh, by the Fed, um, and you know, just as, just as an example, uh, the big three central banks, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and the Fed, Last uh, through the first eight months of last year, pumped like 1.8 trillion dollars into the uh, global economy by buying bonds. This this year, the same period, it's just 99 billion. Um, so, anyone who's been a borrower in uh, any of the emerging market uh, uh, countries and uh, companies who've been borrowers in dollars are feeling the pinch, including China. Mm. So about 30 seconds left here, Rich. Does all of this uh, Sturm and Drang 
potentially affect the policy decision making of the Federal Reserve here in the U.S.? Um, at the moment, most people think not. Uh, we have a meeting next week, and they're expected to forge ahead with uh, another interest rate increase. Uh, most people think that uh, if it really spreads to China, uh, uh, as Carol was alluding to in earlier, and the slowdown in China gets a lot worse, then uh, you know the Fed can't ignore what's going on in the in, in the world's second largest economy. But for the moment, it looks for Powell and company seems to be uh, full speed ahead on rate increases. Good stuff. Rich Miller, economics reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our 99.1 studio there in D.C. And it will be interesting, Jason, to see next week when uh, Jay Powell does hold that next Fed meeting. Uh, of course, we are all focused on what happens in terms of rates, but the co- the conversation and the questions he gets from reporters about whether or not how much the Fed is watching what's going on in emerging markets. Yeah, it's a really good point. I was glad uh, Rich brought us yeah. that story. That story uh, can be found in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands now. You can also find it on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, it is time for the drive to the close. We have a special treat today. John Dorfman. He's the chairman, of course, of Dorfman Value Investments, a well-known name uh, in the world of investing. His insights have appeared all over the place on Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal. He was the, the executive editor, Carol, of Consumer Reports. I had forgotten that until I, I was uh, reading in on this. He joins us on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts. John, great to be with you. Well, thank you. I've never been called a special treat before you made me. <laughs> well, we're delighted you're with us. So what do you make of this market right now? I mean, how so many headlines. I mean, you've seen this this market you know, over the course of the three, four decades here. What's different about what the time we're living in or is it not so different? Well, one one thing that sets it a bit apart, all, all these trade frictions come at a time when there are already kind of dry pine needles on the forest floor in the sense that U.S. stocks are priced fairly high and the Fed is tightening. So, you know, bad news has a bigger effect than it would have if those things weren't true. Traditionally, the market rallies in November and December of midterm election years. I checked the last 10 of them, and uh, eight of the 10 were up and the two that were down were down only mildly. And I think that may well happen this time, too, although you can never be sure that a historical pattern is going to repeat. Interesting. Well, what would change it? What's out there that might change it this time around? Well, I think the special factor right now is the ongoing trade friction, particularly between the U.S. and China. Uh, both countries have a lot to lose. It's in the interest of both to reach an accommodation but you, you can say that about a lot of situations. You could say that about the Middle East. So I'm not totally confident. The the thing that keeps me from fearing a, a a really large downturn in the market and makes me optimistic is the economy is so strong. And I think that 
for the past several years, it's been stronger than most people realize. And I think it's still accelerating. And of course, we're going to get more headlines, Carol, uh, about uh, China and U.S. trade coming directly, I believe, from the president and potential uh, Larry Kudlow and others from the White House just after the close of trading. You know, John, I got to ask you as we dig into some possible investments uh, out there, I believe regional banks are a place where you've been looking. You, of course, are well known for sort of these unloved or unpopular stocks. Tell us about regional banks. Well, I think banks in general are probably a timely investment now, including both the regionals and the money centers. But when I look for a bank stock, the two things I mostly look for are a good return on assets. And over 1% return on assets is traditionally considered good for a bank. And I look to see a very low level of non-performing loans, because that's what really gets banks into trouble. So um, we had held for uh, a year or two a couple of the big money center banks, and I thought we we could improve maybe on our returns by going to the regionals at this point. So just a few months ago, we, we looked around the regionals, and I found two I especially like. Um, one is uh, uh, FSBW, uh, First Bank Corp, of, which is based in Washington, hence the W in the stock symbol. And uh, Bank of the Ozarks, which changed its name recently to Bank OZK. Right. So the latter is big in construction loans. Well, does that and worry? They, you know, it's funny that you bring that up because Bloomberg Business Week did a big story on that bank because it's one that you don't necessarily, we don't talk about a lot, but, you know, if there's a big real estate deal that's been done anywhere in kind of the major cities around the country, uh, Bank of Ozark, so now Bank OZK, has probably been involved in it. And I do wonder about too much real estate exposure there. Everybody's worried about it. That's why the stock's cheap, which is why I'm interested in it. Um, their management has been great over the years, and um, I think they will come through this. Uh, George Gleason, the CEO, has a, a magnificent reputation in the industry. So, um, you know, it, their next two years won't be as as much of a home run as the last two years, but... You know, I said that 1% was good. They've been earning over 2% on assets during these boom times. And FSBW has been earning one and a half. So they meet my tests really well. So I, I have my heart in my throat, but I'm, I'm quite optimistic <laughs> that OZK will work out. Well, it's great to talk to you, John. should point out, Carol, uh, that Dorfman predicted the Dow would hit 25,000 back in March 2013. You know where it was back then? 14,500. So Talk about definitely a, a voice worth listening to. John Dorfman, chairman of Dorfman Value Investments, joining us from uh, deep in Patriot Country, Newton, Massachusetts. Always great to be with you. Hey, and just uh, a few more minutes left in today's trading session. We've got equities really taking another leg down, and they are hovering near their worst levels of the session. And that may have to do, Jason, with some of these concerns about uh, the U.S.-China trade talks, which we're going to get an update from the president after the closing bell. But, you know, two big trading partners, a lot at stake on both sides, and we'll see whether or not uh, the United States and the president plans to follow through on more tariffs against China. And that could certainly worry investors. And one of the most read stories in the Bloomberg right now, Carol, China said to cancel talks if Trump moves ahead 
with these tariffs. So uh, a lot of eyes on Washington right now to see what the president has to say after the close of trading. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.